This is the Dan Wooten Uncancelled Podcast. Let's go. Now, after trans swimmer Leah Thomas thrashed her female competitors at the weekend, serious questions now being raised about whether the very survival of women's sport is under threat. The 22-year-old University of Pennsylvania swimmer became the first transgender athlete to win the NCAA title in the women's 500-yard freestyle, going from 554th in the event as a man to first as a woman. Olympic swimming medalist Sharon Davies has campaigned tirelessly on the protection of female athletes. And overnight, she revealed she's been subjected to horrific death threats because, as she put it, she has presented evidence-based facts on the unfairness of male inclusion in women's sport, which is sex-based discrimination. But the brave and defiant Olympian says she will not stop bringing the actual facts into the light or be bullied into science, uh, into silence. And I'm delighted to say Sharon joins me now. Sharon, first off, I just find it absolutely appalling that you have been subjected to death threats for simply standing up for female athletes. I mean, that shows you how toxic this debate yeah. has become, right? It has become a very toxic debate. I have to say just recently, though, you know, it it feels like the tide is turning. I've been saying, Big time. saying the Big same things time. for three years and I've been trying to stop, you know, females from losing their places and losing their medals. But it seems as if we've almost had to have this happen before people can see how ridiculous it really is. So I think that, that now we can actually say, you know, look, this is what we thought was going to happen and it is happening. And I think the vast majority of people don't want that. They do want fair sport for females. So hopefully something will happen. I think you're absolutely right, by the way, when it comes to public opinion. But I'm much more worried, Sharon, about our sporting bodies, because just yesterday, the Daily Telegraph revealed that British Cycling are now considering changing their rules to allow a trans athlete to compete in the female category at the upcoming Commonwealth Games in Birmingham. Yeah, well, they're not actually changing their rules. What, what The rules that they have are very, very bad, weak rules. They're exactly the same mm. rules as the NC2As had last week, which is literally one year's reduced testosterone to 10 nanomoles. Now, if I started to swim tomorrow morning and had 10 nanomoles of testosterone in my blood system, I would receive a four-year ban instantly. That's how ridiculous it is. Um, and it certainly doesn't mitigate any you know, biological advantage through going through male puberty. So at the moment, the you know, it's so stacked against female athletes to be able to compete on a level playing field and you're talking about such wonderful names as, as you know Dame Laura Kenny and, and Katie Archibald you know these are superstars inside of British cycling that won't be able to live with someone that has a male advantage so I, I just hope that this again brings it to everyone's attention how silly it is and how we can get the rules changed but I find it so sad that we have to throw women under the bus to do what we already you know biologically know. Big time can you just explain Sharon exactly what physical advantages Leah Thomas has? Well, 
I won't pick just on Leah because it's not really her fault, you yeah. know. I'm or any any anyone... trans swimmer, yeah. let's say. So I believe anyone should be able to identify however they like. However, I do believe in fair sport for, for both sexes. And there are two sexes, that's male or female. However you identify, that's up to you. But biological sexes, there are just two. So there's a difference of between 10 and 30% uh, in elite sport. 10% being probably middle distance running, 30% being things like weightlifting, anything that's extremely explosive, and also things like contact sports. So, for example, a male and a female of exactly the same height and weight, a male will hit 160% harder than a female. So not only is this unfair, it's incredibly dangerous going forward in contact sports as well, you know, and things like rugby, uh, taekwondo, you know, lots of different things. So, so there's that, there's a safety aspect to it as well. And Sharon, obviously one thing that some sporting bodies are looking at is extending the amount of time that trans athletes have to be on hormone therapy. But according to what you're saying, that wouldn't undo the natural advantages that they have as a result of going through male puberty. Yeah, it's not just me. I mean, there are 14 peer-reviewed studies out there and very, very famous, you know, sports scientists and biologists that are saying this. Um, you know, big studies that have come out of big universities to show that reducing testosterone, you know, even up to three years takes only about three or four percent off. And when you're giving away 10 percent or even 30 percent, you know, that's not going to make enough of a difference. So I think it's all about creating categories that are welcoming for transgender athletes. And no one ever talks about trans men. Now, trans men are biological females that are on testosterone. They're not actually allowed to compete in the female category because they're breaking the rules. But at the moment, no one even considers where they go because they have no threat to men's sport whatsoever. So it's just women that, you know, men are going to be winning the men's category and they're also going to be winning, winning the women's mm -hmm. category. So what's left for women? You know, that's... And, and it's it's just wrong. You know, it's not about any form of transphobia. It's just about fairness for people, really. A nice, respectful, honest debate that's based on science is, is really the only thing that I've ever been asking for. Well, indeed. And I would say that the Leah Thomas situation actually adds to transphobia, if anything. This isn't good for the trans community, is it? And I've interviewed Caitlyn Jenner on this show who says exactly yeah. that. And I feel like surely we should listen to Caitlyn. She's the world's most famous trans woman, but she's an athlete and she knows the physical disparities that you point out. Yeah, and then that's the point, really. I think we need to defer to people that, that understand this subject. You know, this isn't a, a sort of a cultural thing where anyone has a problem with someone that chooses to identify as transgender. This is about just straightforward fairness and biology. And feelings don't do sport. You know, our bodies do sport. Mm -hmm. And that's what's so relative. So um, I know I'm glad that we're getting the right sort of coverage now. I'm glad that people can see what we've been saying for a long time. I still find it very difficult that our athletes are gagged. Our competing athletes are not allowed to speak. Most of the coaches and the sports staff are not allowed to speak. And I get almost daily telephone calls from competing athletes in very, very upset. Um, and did you, you know, see, Sharon, that, that one of the women who lost her place because of Leah Thomas in the NCAA competition was actually booted off Twitter for complaining about it. So that is the concern, isn't it, that there's this conspiracy of silence around this issue, uh, which big tech actually helps to control. 
Yeah, and big pharmacy as well. There's an awful lot of money that comes in from big pharmacy to um, to lobby on this particular subject. You know, and it's quite scary, really, where it all comes from. I mean, you just, like with most things, Dan, you just follow the money. Mm, very true. So what's the solution, Sharon? Because what seems so complicated for me as someone who doesn't know sport intimately like you do is that different sports and different sporting bodies are able to set their own rules. Does the government need to get involved in this and actually start creating a legal framework that all sporting bodies have to go through? Or is there another solution? I think the government would certainly could certainly get involved, and I was a little bit heartened yesterday with what Boris said in uh, in, in Parliament. In but tone, I think the government has a, a has a part to play in defining what a woman is. You know, if we start losing our language, if we lose the ability to explain what categories we are, what we are, how on earth do we protect it? So that's terribly important that that's protected, and maybe that is a government job. I think the, the sporting bodies are making movements, and I'm very proud to say that actually FINA, which is the swimming body, have got some very strong rules that they're intending to bring out. And also our um, World Coaching Association, 22,000 coaches across the world have come together and said they want to protect female sport in swimming. So I think if we can have one brave association across the world take a stand to protect you know, female athletes, a lot of the others will follow. But it's that first brave association that has to do it. Well, look, Sharon, do not let those anonymous trolls bring you down because you're speaking for the majority on this and it's incredibly important work because for people who love yes. female sport, and I know you do, I certainly do, this really is something that is so critical. It is. For me, the passion comes from the fact that for 20 years, the IOC did not protect women's sport when I was competing. Mm. You know, and they let people like me down that lost to, to an East German doping program. Yeah. But they also let all those East Germans down as well, you know, who, who many of them have actually died. So I have no faith in the IOC whatsoever. They, they, they do not pick countries that have good human rights histories. They do not, you know... Uh, penalise Russia when they're back doing a drug state programme again. They literally follow the money and only 4% of the revenue that comes from the IOC ever goes to the athletes, 4%, which is just ridiculous. So I think that um, you know, if we can get the governing bodies to, to stand up and have a bit of backbone, then, then sport will be saved. Indeed, Olympic silver medalist. But it should have been a gold, Sharon, as you point out, if it was a fair system. Sharon Davies, thank you so much. Thank you. What the Farage time now, and Nigel Farage is with me. Nigel, I was talking about this at the top of the show. Prince William, of course, didn't apologise uh, for British colonialism and slavery, but I thought he went a long way to addressing a lot of the concerns of the Jamaican Republicans. But of course, Nigel, because the BLM-inspired Meghan-hating folk who just want to rain on the parade of William and Kate, it wasn't enough for them. <laughs> well, Dan, I know your comments have, uh, you know, been um, excitable on Twitter today. I mean, look, you know, what we've had, of course, is... I feel a bit sorry for William and Kate really being put in this position. Demands for reparations and a whole narrative here uh, that Meghan and Harry have helped to create. I mean, of that, there is no doubt at all. But I tell you what gets me down about this. It is uh, the sort of the feeling amongst so many commentators in the UK that somehow slavery is a uniquely 
British thing. We were the only people in the world that ever did it. White British people enslaved black people and sent them across to the Caribbean and the Americas. Now look, none of us, none of us today think what happened those centuries back was a good thing. We even don't think public executions are a good thing. There are so many things that happened years ago that we wouldn't you know, approve of in any way at all. But the thought we should pay reparations, well, hold on a minute, because there was something called the Barbary Pirates. Now, I know that any young people watching this won't know, because they won't have been taught this at all through our education system. But a recent report from Ohio University in America suggests that up to 1.25 million people from Sicily right up the west coast of Spain and France and into Cornwall, getting back to your previous <laughs> debate that you had before the break, Wales, Ireland, 1.25 million white slaves were taken by North Africans from countries that we now know as Algeria and Libya. Um, and by the way, folks, it wasn't just the Brits doing slave trade, the rest of Europe were doing slave trade. So let's get a sense of perspective. And what's really brought all this on for me isn't just the royal visit to Jamaica, it's Tulse Hill in South London. Oh, now, I, yeah. I was at school at Dunning, a mile up yeah. the road. They're going to rename Tulse Hill. They're going to cancel Tulse Hill. They're going to get rid of dozens of road names. I've got to be honest with you. I've known Tulse Hill for over 50 years. I didn't know. I mean, ignorant me. I didn't even know it was based on a guy called Sir William Tulse, who made his money, you know, out of the slave trade. But, but, but we can't go on pretending this is a purely British, a purely white thing. We need some sense of perspective and balance in this argument. And above all, what we should say is whatever was wrong in the past, it was the British that first realized what a moral wrong it was, abolished it, and then spent decades on the high seas driving out the slave trade at the cost of thousands of Royal Navy sailors' lives. So please, folks, can we have a sense of perspective? And if reparations are to be paid, well, Libya, Egypt, Algeria, you owe us a huge amount of money. Um, and the Cornish will be very, very pleased. They won't even need Gordon Ramsay anymore. <laughs> But it would never end. I mean, it was interesting, Nigel. Uh, Dominique Samuels on our superstar panel tonight. She is a Brit with Jamaican heritage. And she said her concern about this, and I found it fascinating, actually, is that the current government of Jamaica is wanting to wallpaper all of the social problems, all of the other issues in their society today by focusing on this historic issue of reparations. And I think she's right, you know, because actually the Jamaican prime minister should be thinking a bit more about how to turn his country around. Yes, I mean, you know, if the Jamaican prime minister wants to continue with this narrative of what he sees as being historic wrongs, and they probably are in many ways, um, that is giving victimhood status to an entire country. Yep. And that of itself is a very negative emotion. Tell someone they're a victim and they'll feel down. Tell someone they're a champion and they can overcome things and, 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 and succeed in the future. 
And they, and you know what? They might just do very, very well. So I, I find the whole thing a negative narrative, but there's something bigger going on here, and it's not being commented on, Dan, but I'm going to mention it now very briefly, and we'll, and we'll come back to it in the weeks to come. Take Barbados. Mm. Barbados recently got rid of the Queen as head of state. Why? Well, China is the answer. China are doing their best through loans, money and investments to break the British link with the Commonwealth. It's happening. We've seen it with the Chagos Islands and that row that's going on there. We've seen it in Barbados. Jamaica, I don't think China's the influence there, but there is a big attempt Yet. Yet. out there to downgrade the English-speaking peoples of the world and this remarkable alliance. And there are lots and lots of people in Jamaica whose granddads flew in Bomber Command in World War II. There is an amazing link between our nations, and it's being poisoned by many, many people. And that is a terrible shame. Very good point. Very good point. Nigel, I just uh, want to come back to this idea that's been propagated by the left-wing media, by BLM in particular, that the British royal family is racist. And yes, I did get a lot of criticism today because I blamed Meghan Markle for some of this, not for all of it, but for some of it. And I stand by that, Nigel, because her interview with Oprah Winfrey is being used <clears throat> by some of the main activists for reparations and a Republican Jamaica right now. But what I found particularly unsavoury, Nigel, was the fact that the BLM movement tried to use this picture of William and Kate uh, greeting fans behind a wire fence when Raheem Sterling had done exactly the same thing a few moments earlier and no one mentioned it. Yeah, well, look, you know, the contradictions, uh, the uh, untruths of Meghan Markle know no bounds. And the fact that Prince Harry himself um, is happy for his family to suffer some of the injustice that comes from this, the injustice that comes from this is so wrong. But the truth of it is, as you can see, Kate and Wills are becoming global megastars. One dares to say Kate more than Wills, somewhat reminiscent of what was going on 40 years ago uh, with his father and with Diana. But I think we should all be very pleased and very proud that out there on the world stage, we've got a couple like this doing us such great credit. And you know, with the Queen now being effectively confined to barracks in Windsor, we need to recognise that the royal family are the most important part of soft power that we have in this world. The Commonwealth now has within it 2.3 billion people. Add to that over 300 Americans who seem to love the royal family even more than we do, and you realise just how important the monarchy is to us, our presence, our soft power in the world, and especially in post-Brexit Britain, it matters even more. And that makes, frankly, what Meghan and Harry have done, nothing, nothing but totally despicable. I agree. And I think they will lose. I think this narrative that the British royal family is racist has been pushed by the far left extremists in the US media. But actually, you're completely right. Even loads of Republicans, Nigel, in Jamaica absolutely adored William and Kate. 
There are about 60 protesters outside the British High Commission. It's just the fact that the media uh, who are in the tank for Harry and Meghan in the US are trying to create a particular narrative. And I think they will lose, but we have to expose it. Well, look, you know, the media, the mainstream media, and that includes a very large chunk of the British media, um, have always been ashamed um, of this country, of its standing, of its history, of its status, of its royal family, of its individuality, of its uniqueness. It's why they wanted us all to be parceled and packaged up into a wonderful new European project run by bureaucrats we couldn't vote for, couldn't remove, and who were generally kicked out political failures for their own countries, such as Belgium. Um, so look, there's nothing surprising in any of this. And I mean, look at Belize. The truth of it is, the Baileys trip from the couple this week was a huge success. Half a dozen people turned up the placards and protest. And you would have thought the whole of Belize were in uproar, uproar <laughs> at the fact that the royal family had visited. I mean, Barbados, who got rid of the Queen as head of state, without a referendum, did it without reference to anybody. And opinion polls show, actually, a majority of Barbadians wish that hadn't happened. So yeah. never be surprised that mainstream media wants to destroy our image, our reputation, our legacy, and our future. Do you know what? They don't like the country. They're embarrassed by us. And George Orwell got it so right in the late 1940s when he said, there's a certain type of Englishman who would rather steal from the poor box in church on a Sunday morning than stand for the national anthem. They're still there. They still exist. But the Brexit vote proved the Brexit vote proved that the silent majority are sound, decent, upright, honest, patriotic people. And I believe in increasing numbers, they're going to become fans of GB News too. What a note to end on. Inspiring Nigel Farage. Have a great weekend. We'll speak next week. This time now for Uncancelled. And this is where Britain's top commentators speak out on controversial issues without the fear of the cancel culture sweeping the rest of the media. Now, yesterday marked two years since the decision to lock down the country, shutter the economy and criminalise the very human need to socialise. Without any cost-benefit analysis of such a decision, the effects have been devastating. But still, those behind the move refuse to own up to their grave mistakes. And the evidence keeps on coming. A new Ipsos poll reveals the catastrophic legacy of paranoia and fear that lingers to this day, with half of Brits surveyed saying they would support the reintroduction of restrictions if a new variant emerged. Well, as we mark this unhappy anniversary, activist and freedom fighter Zubi wants those behind the decision to hold their hands up, take the blame and finally put an end to this madness. He joins me now. And Zubi, you're completely right, because one thing that has been infuriating me all week, and I know you agree on this, is that all of those people who warned long shutdowns, money printing, COVID policies would batter the economy, as you say, and lead to inflation. We're accused of being selfish, wanting to kill grandma and putting uh, money over human lives. But we were right, right? Yeah, it's been very frustrating, Dan. And it's the least satisfactory and least enjoyable I told you so ever, I think. Totally. And yeah. this goes so far beyond 
this goes so far beyond the UK as well. We're talking about the majority of countries in the entire Western world for sure, but I think the entire entirety of countries in the world in general just fell into this domino effect after seeing the lockdowns in China and decided to totally jettison the concept of human rights and civil liberty and freedom, all under the guise of protecting people, keeping people safe with no cost-benefit analysis, no consideration of what's important, and no consideration of the health, physical, mental health, financial ramifications, um, inflation, so many things, social development effect on children. There have been so many issues that have come out of the lockdowns and other restrictive measures. And honestly, it's so mind-boggling how few people are willing to even accept or entertain the idea that this was not necessary and it was not effective at stopping the slow of the, of the spread of the virus. Um, and also that it caused more harm than it did good. And there have been many studies that have come out this year even showing that type of damage. Zubi, what's so frustrating for me is that the governments that spread all of this fear sort of want to keep it in reserve. And you could see by those poll results that I mentioned in the intro, a lot of people still remain terrified. They still remain trapped in this bubble of disinformation that lockdowns actually work. Nicola Sturgeon maintaining the absolute farce of forcing school children to wear masks. Isn't it on these people who got it so wrong now to actually come out and stop the fear? It is, and this is the problem. This has been the problem from the very beginning, is that this whole thing is politicized. It's been political yeah. from the very beginning. And it's understandable to some degree, in the face of a new danger, in the face of a threat, Governments, political leaders cannot be seen to be doing nothing. And the truth is, sometimes doing something and doing something drastic can cause far more problems than doing something, than either doing nothing or doing something that is more calm and moderated. And what was happening was, like I said, there was this domino effect in different countries. We remember early on, it started out in China. China did lockdowns. I believe that Italy was the first country in Europe to do lockdowns. Initially, the UK was never going to do lockdowns. They were going to take the, the Sweden approach and keep things open and be much more moderated with it. But there was all this pressure coming from certain people in the media, coming from the political um, class. And so... And then, of course, the citizens start demanding this. They start demanding this drastic action to be taken. And all throughout this, because there is this fear, nobody is thinking, does this make sense? Is this effective? You can say the same for masks. You can say the same for lockdowns. You can say the same for uh, standing six feet apart and the plastic barriers, the uh, nonsense rules in restaurants. There are so many different measures. And at no point has someone actually sat down and really thought, OK, is this working? Is this no, effective? What are the pros and, and cons here? And Zubi, quite the opposite, actually, which is what upsets me. Yesterday, Rishi Sunak was almost celebrating lockdown. This is two years since lockdown, as if it's a really good thing, as if we should be happy that the government locked us down. And that's when I realised, whoa, the narrative has become so topsy-turvy and out of control. Mm -hmm. And this is a big problem as well because of how long it went on for. From the very beginning, one of my biggest concerns wasn't just that I don't believe a government has a right to do this in a liberal country, but also the longer this goes on for, the more people are going to get used to it. 
people are now emotionally bonded to their masks. They're yeah. emotionally bonded to this concept of lockdown, et cetera. It's set this terrible precedent, which has totally inverted the way that our societies are supposed to function where simple things like, I mean, I'm, I'm happy that the UK has been, at least England, has been dropping a lot of these rules and restrictions. But if you travel around the world and go to different countries, there are still places where it feels like, it feels like May 2020. They're still going 100% with all of this madness. And at this stage in the game, I mean, I can give people a little bit of leeway, but two years on from the situation, it is yeah, truly no astonishing just there's how much no this excuse is affecting anymore. people. Well, Zuby, thank you for continuing to fight for freedom. And we'll do so on this show always to Zuby. We'll speak again next week. Thank you so much. Dan Wilson here again. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of my podcast, Uncancelled. Did you like what you hear? Well, remember to subscribe, rate and review and join me for more newsmaking interviews, fiery debate and free speech on Dan Wilson tonight every Monday to Thursday from 9pm till 11pm on GB News.